Hello and welcome to the DeathCast. I am your host, author, and journalist Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me this week. We are taking our second look at the Long Island serial killer case, also known as the Lisk or the Gilgo Beach Murders. As always, before we get into the case, just the normal show notes. If you'd like to follow me on social media, just look for the DeathCast or the DeathCast podcast. I'm on most social media networks. If you'd like to sign up for the show's mailing list, just go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com and click on the sign-up button. I don't often send things out, so this isn't a case where you're going to get spammed incessantly, which I know happens from certain shows. If you would like to get any of the show's merchandise that's mostly shirts, you can click on the link in the show description. And for those of you who have purchased merch in the past, it is greatly appreciated. If you like what it is I do, please consider leaving a five-star review wherever it is that you get your favorite podcasts. They really do help others to discover the show. And don't forget to like and subscribe. Lastly, before we dive into it full-on, a couple people have reached out and mentioned various books written on this case and asked if I've read any of them. I've scanned some of them. Um, Really, the way I operate is more times than not, I prefer to do my own independent research on a case and present the information that I have found to you. That's not to say that I will not look at books and gather some information from there, but More often than not, that's really just a reference point as I use the bibliography in the backs of those books as a starting point to try and gather information. But thank you guys for recommending those books. All right, now that all of that is out of the way, would you get yourself a nice comfy chair, get something to drink, kick back, relax. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. When we left off last week, we had Shannon Gilbert, who had gone missing. In the early morning hours of May 1st, 2010, after attending what some people have described as a party, others have said was simply a lone hookup from Craigslist move forward a few months, and then we had the discovery of multiple bodies as one of the officers was out with a cadaver dog trying to find Shannon's bodies. And all of these bodies ended up being identified, and they all were within, I believe, about 500 yards of one another and had been wrapped inside of burlap sacks. After these bodies were discovered, the police commissioner for Suffolk County, one Richard Dormer, was quoted in the news media as stating, quote, Four bodies found in the same location pretty much speaks for itself. It's more than a coincidence we could have a serial killer. Obviously, this garnered a lot of press attention. You're going to see some 
sites, if you look into this, saying that serial killers out on Long Island weren't something that has happened in the past. We know from having covered that that isn't true. We have cases like Richard Cottingham, the torso murderer, and Joel Rifkin as two examples of serial killers operating on Long Island. You're also going to come across a lot of different points of view stating that the police really didn't look into these crimes because there's so much corruption within the Long Island Police Departments, particularly Suffolk County. And that isn't without merit. I have come across numerous instances of corruption while looking into this case. However, that corruption is not linked to this case or cases, as you'll see. A lot of people state that the Long Island police departments haven't really given these cases a lot of effort or attention because the known victims are prostitutes. That's really not the case here, however, because there has been so much attention placed on these groups of cases, the Suffolk County Sheriff's Department would be insane not to put resources towards trying to solve these crimes because the eyes of so many people are on them. That's not to say that initially they may not have given these crimes as much attention as they needed, but they are giving these crimes attention. A couple people have also reached out to complain that when talking about Shannon Gilbert, I kind of dismissed the fact that she supposedly had bipolar disorder. That is my opinion after having dealt with numerous individuals with drug addiction issues. The term bipolar is thrown out there by a lot of people simply as an excuse to mitigate their responsibility for their behavior. I have seen nothing from anyone to firmly state that she, in fact, did suffer from bipolar. I have, however, seen much that indicates to me that her actions and reactions were a direct result of her drug usage. Some of these people have gone on to state that, you know, there was serious mental illness within her family growing up, be that as it may, that does not have a bearing on this case insofar as what others may or may not have been suffering from did not place Shannon Gilbert on Long Island on the night of May 1st, 2010. Her addiction and inability to get and remain clean and sober is what led her to make the choices that placed her in the position where the things that happened happened to her. And no, before others jump on me and say that I'm victim-blaming, that's not victim-blaming. That's looking at a situation from an objective outside perspective and seeing things as they actually are. 
as opposed to this type of rose-colored glasses that all too often people look at this type of crime, wherein they view the victims as living their best life, and unfortunately these things happen to them. The reality is much grimmer. These women get into this life because of their addictions. Now, whatever triggered them to go and seek out their addictions is inconsequential. The fact of the matter is they ended up addicted, and because of this addiction, the addiction forced them into a life of prostitution, which then allowed them to be into this position where these things happened to them. And that is an unfortunate situation. But it is reality. Not going to pontificate on that uh, train of thought much further. If you really want to hear my thoughts on it, go back and listen to the Green River Killer case. I think it's five or six parts long. I discussed my viewpoints on how society should deal with women who are in this situation, and believe it or not, it's not turned a blind eye to them. I actually think that society does need to help these women, and if they want to stay in that profession, then society needs to build in things to protect them better. Now, back into the case itself, police resumed searching the area in and around Gilgo Beach towards the end of February, beginning of March of 2011. At the end of that month, on the 29th, police discovered a skull, forearm, and hands. These remains were found about a mile east of where the Four initial bodies were discovered. Unlike previous efforts by the police to comb this area, this time around they actually brought in fire trucks and used the extension ladders on the top of them so that the police could look down through this thick, dense foliage along Ocean Highway. What they were looking for were disturbances in the ground. After seeing a disturbance, they would send in the cadaver dogs to go and search the area under the hopes that the cadaver dogs would hit on a scent and they would therefore be able to discover something. I've read some accounts from people complaining about how the police went about this particular search Why didn't they, you know, really cover the ground as it were? You have to understand, if you're not from the East Coast, it's not all city. Areas like this, you have extremely thick trees and underbrush, almost like mini jungles. So, to get through these areas on foot is extremely difficult and hazardous because you have things like sinkholes and swamps that you can't see until you're right on top of it. And that's what the police were dealing with here. Now, eventually, these remains would be identified as belonging to Jessica Taylor. Taylor was born on May 5, 1983 in Washington, D.C. and grew up in the Maryland and Virginia areas. 
Family and friends have stated that Jessica had dreams of becoming a singer and an actress, and in fact moved to New York City in 2002 to pursue those dreams. However, as so often happens in these kinds of situations, Jessica ended up developing a pretty serious drug habit, and eventually she turned to prostitution as an effort to support both herself and her habit. Now, what happened next isn't exactly clear. I have some sources stating that Jessica was last seen on July 21st in Manhattan, while other sources state that her last known whereabouts were leaving a motel in Manhattan on July 26. Both of these are in 2003. Somewhere between the 21st and the 26th, tragedy befell Jessica. Her family attempted to get in contact with her and were unsuccessful, leading them to contact local authorities in an effort to try and track Jessica down. The family took to putting up flyers with pictures of Jessica in an effort to try and discover what had become of her. But unbeknownst to Jessica's family, her remains had already been found. On July 26th, someone who was walking a dog in Manorville, New York, discovered a torso lying on a piece of plastic with the hands, feet, and head missing. And as we've already discussed, these were found on March 29th of 2011 on Kilgo Beach, which is roughly 95 miles away. So there's a great deal of distance in between where the torso was discovered and where the hands, head, and feet were disposed of Someone went to a great deal of effort to try and conceal this crime, obviously. On April 4th, 2011, police using this same manner of detection, wherein they're using the fire trucks with the ladders and the cadaver dogs, find three more sets of remains. Now, this is important as there's a pretty broad shift in the victimology here. One set of remains that was discovered belonged to a woman by the name of Valerie Mack, who was originally known as Jane Doe Number 6 and the Manorville Jane Doe. Valerie used numerous aliases, including Melissa Taylor. She was born on July 2, 1976, in Port Republic, New Jersey. Valerie had been working as an escort out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. As with these other young women, Valerie had a drug problem, which led her to working as a prostitute. And she's known to have gone missing sometime during the spring-summer of 2000. That was when family members saw her when she came home to visit. It's known at the time of her disappearance that Valerie had at least one young child and was living with a boyfriend. 
on November 19th of 2000, her torso was discovered in Manorville, New York, which, as we've discussed, is quite a long way from where her head, hands, and feet would be discovered in 2011. Valerie's head, hands, and feet were found inside of a plastic bag along Ocean Parkway, although no personal items were discovered with the rest of her remains. Interesting here is that investigators initially believed that Valerie might, in fact, have been working as a prostitute in the New York area, but as we are know now, this was not the case. She was actually working out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Her remains were identified through forensic genealogy in May of 2020. Another one of the victims discovered was a toddler who was lying next to one of the other victims. Now, eventually, it would be found that this toddler was related to another victim who has become known as Peaches due to a tattoo on the victim's body. The circumstances of Peaches' discovery are as follows, and this is coming from the doughnetwork.org. On June 28, 1997, the torso of a female was found in a heavily wooded area of Hempstead Lake State Park in Lakeview, New York. It was found that the torso had a six-inch long horizontal surgical scar on the lower abdomen, which could possibly have come from a cesarean section. There was also a tattoo on this body of a peach with a bite taken out of it and two drips falling from its core. This was located on her left breast and was approximately two inches by one inch. According to the Doe Network, her physical description was 16 to 30 years old and possibly of mixed race, although other distinguishing characteristics such as height, weight, things of that nature could not be discovered. It should be noted, though, that... The police put out a picture of this tattoo in a tattoo magazine, and eventually they received a phone call from an individual in Connecticut who stated that he remembered giving the tattoo to a young black woman who was approximately 19 years old, and the woman had come in with her aunt and a cousin. The woman had told this tattoo artist that she was from either the Bronx or Long Island and had come out to Connecticut because she was having problems with her boyfriend at the time. Now, it's hard to figure out exactly, but it appears that the body was found inside of a Rubbermaid container, although another set of remains was later discovered that also belonged to this victim. These were discovered in Jones Beach, and I'm kind of unsure as to whether those remains that, you know, that head, hands, arms, feet 
were in this Rubbermaid container or if it was the torso itself that was found in the Rubbermaid container. Also inside of this container was a maroon towel and a dark colored floral patterned pillowcase. The other remains were found in 2011 at Jones Beach. And when these remains were found, there were two gold bracelets. When the body of the toddler was discovered, it was found that there was one 16-inch gold-colored chain and two gold-colored hoop earrings. So obviously, whoever this young woman was, the killer murdered her, dismembered her, placed the torso inside of this Rubbermaid container, got rid of it, got rid of the other remains. Unlike the other sets of remains that were found here, however, which had been transported quite a considerable distance, the body of the toddler was only transported roughly seven miles or so from where the remains of the mother were found. But here is where the story takes kind of a turn. This fourth set of remains that were found were not from a woman, but were in fact discovered to have belonged to an Asian male. Now, for me personally, the discovery of a man's body at this body dump site raises a couple of red flags, and I'll give you the reasons why that is. It is very rare for a serial killer to switch their victimology so drastically. By that, I mean going from females working as sex workers to now suddenly we have a male in there. If we lump the peaches in with the victims of the Gogo Beach slangs, We don't know much about her other than the fact that she was a female and it's very possible that she had the child with her assuming that she was working as a prostitute. We don't know that for certain. And that the killer decided to remove both of them to remove a witness. The male is a bit different unless this male was a driver for one of these women and decided to follow the killer, like let's say the killer got the girl into his car and drove away, the driver follows after them to see where they're going, and upon discovering this, the killer kills the woman who's in his car along with this male who has followed them. Or possibly the male witnessed the individual getting rid of the bodies or committing the murder. That's another way to explain why there might be a male in with this group. Outside of that, though, I don't see any relation to this Asian male being amongst the bodies of these females. And that's not to say that they aren't linked. That's just, um, again, an objective overview from the outside. It is very possible that all of these cases here are linked, but it's also very possible that they are not linked, or at least four of them are linked, and then you have this other one, this Asian male, who is not a part of the other series of crimes, and looking into them, you have to keep that in mind, that there is no definitive evidence that 
I'm going to call him Victim D, is connected to victims A, B, C, specifically because, at least from what I could find, the condition of his body was not in a similar manner as those of the women, meaning there were no body parts that were cut off and disposed of in another area that I'm aware of. And it's just as possible that he was killed for another reason and that his killer or killers decided to dispose of him along Ocean Highway because it was a convenient, out-of-the-way area to get rid of the remains. Should be noted that the male victim was found wearing women's clothing, which might be an indication that they were a transgender or cross-dresser. We will get back into the case in just a moment. Cobra Killer, Gay Porn, Murder, and the Manhunt to Bring the Killers to Justice by Andrew E. Stoner and Peter A. Conway is the first and most detailed account of the gay porn murder that shocked a nation. Cobra Killer, featured on NBC's Snapped Killer Couples, pulls back the glitzy veil of the gay porn industry to expose a story of deceit, greed, and the ultimate betrayal. Cobra Killer, gay porn, murder, and the manhunt to bring the killers to justice, tells the story of online gay porn entrepreneur Brian Kosis, whose brutal near-decapitation on a Wednesday in early 2007 sent shockwaves through the small Pennsylvania town where he ran his porn empire. The basis for the Christian Slater film King Cobra, Cobra Killer has been called an addictive page-turner that you won't want to put down, by the San Diego LGBT Weekly, and a grisly, gripping documentary account of the 2007 murder by Passport Magazine, Cobra Killer, Gay Porn, Murder, and the Manhunt to Bring the Killers to Justice by Andrew E. Stoner and Peter A. Conway, available on Amazon in paperback and ebook, or at bookstores nationwide. We are back. I have a fresh cup of coffee, and when we left, I was discussing the body of the Asian male who was found and how that body had been discovered wearing women's clothing. Now, the individuals who believe that this particular victim may in fact have been a victim of the Long Island serial killer point to the fact that Yes, the Asian male was found wearing women's clothing, and they posit the idea that the killer may have discovered this possibly when they were in the act of consummating their relationship and flown into a rage because this is not going to allow them to get the kind of satisfaction that they want from killing their victims, so they beat this man in the head and beat them to death. That is a possibility. Although, unfortunately, we just don't know enough about this particular victim or the circumstances of their disappearance to be able to definitively link this killing in with the others. I know, I'm aware, other people have definitively linked the male victim to the others, Myself, personally, until there's more evidence to sway me one way or the other, I just can't do that. Now, on April 11th of 2011, 
more sets of remains were discovered. These were in a plastic bag on Jones Beach State Park. As I discussed earlier, these remains were found to belong to Peaches, who was also the mother of the toddler, whose body was found down at Gilgo Beach. They also discovered another set of remains. This was in the form of a human skull. This was actually west of Tobe Beach. This victim was initially dubbed the Jane Doe Number 7. However, eventually this set of remains would be linked to those of the Fire Island Jane Doe, whose legs were found in 1996 on Fire Island. So some background information on Fire Island Jane Doe. Her legs were discovered by seasonal residents Robert and Andrew Ragona, who were walking along Blue Point Beach on Fire Islands. I have read some differing reports on this. Some state that only her legs were found, while others state that other parts of the body were discovered. In any event, the remains were found inside of a back black plastic bag floating in the water. There isn't a whole lot of information on the Fire Island Jane Doe. There was some scarring on the legs as well as a suture. Beyond that, though, the police have not released a whole lot. According to law enforcement, there are no dental records on file for the victim they did release a sketch which can be found online. Shortly after the discovery of these sets of remains, the police stated that they did not believe that all of these victims were the work of one serial killer. I tend to agree with the police in this regard, particularly because... There are different MOs as far as how the remains are discovered. We have one set of remains which are recovered inside of burlap sacks or wrapped in burlap. And these remains are intact insofar as it does not appear, or at least the police have not given us any indication that body parts were missing well, as with these other sets of remains, there are body parts missing, and in fact, they're scattered over a wide range area from 94 miles to 7 miles away. Why is that important? Well, it's very, very rare to see a serial killer kind of reverse course in the escalation of their crimes. Oftentimes, you will have a killer who starts out, say, strangling women, and then over a period of time or number of victims, they escalate the way that they kill their victims. You know, it starts out, it might not, it's enough to strangle the victim, but over time, it may become necessary for the killer to begin to dismember that victim in order to get that same sense of accomplishment 
and power that the initial victims brought them. And I can't think of anyone off the top of my head at the moment who went from dismembering victims to murdering them and discarding. That's not to say that there aren't cases where that's happened, but off the top of my head, I can't think of anyone who made a conscious decision to start doing that. Oftentimes, when you encounter that, it's because they were disturbed in the process of committing the crimes and were not able to take that extra step or steps to defile the victims. To have four victims pretty much in a row discovered in a similar manner with no known dismemberment when dismemberment is found to have taken place with earlier victims, to me that just doesn't jibe. And I believe we're dealing with more than one killer. In fact, I believe we're dealing with more than two killers, but I'm going to get into that in a later episode and give evidence as to why I feel the way I do. Now, I know there's some people out there that live and breathe this case and are going to disagree with me. That's fine if you want to come on to any of my social media and discuss the case with me in a civil manner. That's excellent. However, if you're going to come on my social media and scream and shout and demand that I listen to you and believe the way you do, well, you've got another thing coming because I'll boot you right off and block you because unlike many of these individuals, I've actually done investigations to a certain extent on a professional basis, not just internet sleuthing. So, On May 17th, of 2011, Suffolk County Police announced that they are looking into other homicide cases for possible links to these bodies that have been discovered. And they mentioned one case in particular, that of Tanya Rush, who was found on June 27, 2008 in Belmore. Tanya was 39 years old when her remains were discovered, and she had been living on Livonia Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, when her remains were discovered. They were inside of a suitcase that was found on the South Newbridge Road exit ramp to the westbound Southern State Parkway in Nassau County, New York. A few weeks after this, on May 29th, Peter Hackett, you'll remember he was the doctor who had called Shannon Gilbert's mother after her daughter's disappearance and then later stated he didn't make these calls. Well, he admits to CBS News that he did in fact make these phone calls, although from what I understand, a reason for these phone calls being made has never been given, which is one of the reasons why suspicion has fallen on Dr. Hackett. On November 29th of 2011, the police commissioner for Suffolk County, Richard Dormer, announces that the police now believe that all of these crimes are connected to a single killer. However, he further states that he does not believe that Shannon Gilbert is one of these victims. 
this draws a lot of attention in the media, but also draws a lot of ire online, and still does to this day. On December 6th, 2011, Shannon Gilbert's pocketbook, ID, cell phone, jeans, and shoes were found during a search of the Oak Beach Marsh, not far from where she was last seen. This was followed a few days later on December 13, 2011, when her body was discovered. The remains were skeletalized, and I've read that she was found lying face up, with police at the time stating that if these remains were in fact those of Shanna and Gilbert, she was more likely than not attempting to make her way to the causeway. According to police, the area where Shannon's body was discovered was marshland and was extremely thick with vegetation, and they believe that it would have been next to impossible for her to have made her way out. And according to an article by CNN, and I'm going to quote this part, Homicide detectives spotted the bones at 9.14 a.m. Tuesday while riding atop an amphibious machine after having drained nearby areas last week in an effort to improve access and visibility. The remains were discovered about a quarter mile away from Gilbert's pocketbook, which was found last week alongside a cell phone, shoes, and a pair of jeans. Now, eventually, it would be found through an autopsy that the body was indeed that of Shannon Gilbert. The Suffolk County Medical Examiner's Office did an autopsy on the remains and stated that they believed that Shannon died by death from misadventure. Now, Shannon's family then and to this day have disputed these findings and have stated that they don't believe the Suffolk County Police Department is taking their family members' death seriously, so much so that they actually went out and got another medical examiner to do an autopsy of this body. This medical examiner has stated that he believes that Gilbert was strangled to death. Normally how they determine this is by looking at the vertebrae of the body and they can tell from breaks within the body whether or not a strangulation death has occurred. However, I have not encountered anything anywhere stating that either of these autopsies found evidence indicating that there was breakage in the vertebrae of the neck. One thing that we need to point out, though, is neither autopsy found any form of drugs in Shannon's system. That could be for a number of reasons. It could be that there wasn't enough of her remains left to do a test where substances could be discovered. could also be that whatever was in her system had leached out into the surrounding areas as the body decomposed inside of this marsh. Conversely, it could also be that Shannon did in fact have bipolar disorder and that prior to fleeing the house she had a manic episode 
which would explain why no form of drugs were found in her system. It could also be that her body went into withdrawals for not having the drugs that she was used to taking, and in fact, this caused her to, and pardon the crudeness of this expression, wig out, at which point she went off on both the John for the evening as well as her driver before running off into the night. Regardless, the police eventually stated that Shannon was not a victim of Lisk. As I mentioned a few moments ago, her family strongly disagrees. I disagree with their assertion. I believe that for whatever reason, Shannon went into a manic episode, be it from drug usage or mental health problems or going through withdrawals and that she took off into the night really not knowing where she was going. You can listen to the phone call that she made to 9-11. I don't care what anyone says. Her actions and words are not those of someone who is coherent and in control of their faculties. I believe that she ran off into this swampland, and as she ran, for whatever reason, she began throwing off her clothing and getting rid of her possessions, and you do see this type of stuff with someone who is experiencing a psychotic break. After throwing away her belongings, then Shannon ended up in this swamp area, at which point she either ran out of energy or became stuck, and this is why she was found where she was at. I've seen no evidence to conclusively point me to the conclusion that she was in fact murdered, but I've seen a lot of circumstantial evidence, which, if you're unaware, is how many of these cases are almost always built and solved, even to this day indicating that this is in fact what happened to her. To wrap up the whole Shannon Gilbert part of this case, in July of 2016, Shannon's mother, Marie Gilbert, was stabbed to death by Shannon's sister, Sarah, in Sarah's apartment, in Ellenville, New York. Now, the two women lived in separate apartments, and as the story goes, Sarah invited her mother over to her apartment and then stabbed her to death. Sarah was initially charged for criminal possession of a weapon and murder in the second degree. At the time of the crime, Sarah Gilbert's Attorney stated that she was schizophrenic and had been in and out of mental hospitals over the preceding years and months and had recently turned violent, even at one point killing a family dog in front of her eight-year-old son, drowning the dog. Initially, they didn't give all of the information that was being held back from the police. 
Sarah actually stabbed her mother with a 15-inch kitchen knife 227 times before beating her with a fire extinguisher and spraying her with foam from that extinguisher. After all of this, Sarah proceeded to strip her mother and remove all of the jewelry from her body. Sarah ended up being sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. She appealed this, although thankfully she lost this appeal. Whether or not this young woman was schizophrenic is besides the point. The mental disease that she was suffering from does not match the nature of the crime that she ended up committing. However, it does give us some idea because many people believe that mental illness is in fact something that is inherited from other members of the family. There is a lot of evidence, clinical research, that shows that this is in fact the case. So going back to Shannon Gilbert just briefly for a moment, if her sister had schizophrenia, the likelihood that Shannon may have suffered from something similar is raised, although it is not definitive. That, too, would give credence to the police's idea that she suffered a split from reality, which led her to the unfortunate circumstances of her death. We are going to call the episode here for this week, Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have thoughts you'd like to share with with me in a constructive, non-aggressive manner, I would love to hear from you. You can find me on social media under the DeathCast, or you can go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com and drop me a line there. Until next time, the DeathCast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Stay morbid!